Hey guys, welcome back to the channel. Um, so today we're going to be in our MedSurge uh, Understanding Medical Nursing 6th Edition book and I'm going to be starting out of chapter 6. This is Nursing Care of Patients with Fluid, Electrolyte, and Acid Balance or Acid-Based Imbalances. Um, so I've gone through here and I've highlighted a couple things and I'm going to kind of just give you the shortest version possible. It's not a long chapter so um, we'll go ahead and get started. Alright, so at the beginning it's telling us about percentages of uh, water in people. So the first thing that we see is that um, the body is continuously changing and water supports these changes. So approximately 60% of a young adult's body weight is water. Older people is less than 50% and infants are between 70 and 80% water. So we see the infants have the most. Um, the little older we get, we lose a little more and then... Um, the older that we get, we lose even more. Uh, fat cells do not contain water. Therefore, people with a higher percentage of fat cells have a lower percentage of water. Uh, and that would be important to know. So in addition to water, body fluids also contain dissolved solid substances called solutes. And these are uh, electrolytes and they can also be non-electrolytes. So electrolytes are chemicals that conduct electricity when dissolved in water. And some examples of those would be sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, acids, and bases. And then we have our non-electrolytes, and those do not conduct electricity. And those examples would be glucose and urea. So we're going to move on to the header fluid balance. Um, they're located in uh, fluids are located in various compartments within the body. So they're are intracellular and extracellular fluids. Um, intracellular is going to be in the cell, and then extracellular is going to be outside of the cell. But the extracellular is also broken down into three different types. You have interstitial, intravascular, and transcellular. So interstitial fluid is the water that surrounds body cells and contains lymph. Intravascular fluid is also blood plasma and is the fluid from arteries, veins, and capillaries. Um, and then the fluid and electrolytes move between interstitial and intravascular. And then you have your transcellular fluids, and those are in specific compartments of the body, such as cerebrospinal fluid, digestive juices, and synovial fluid in the joints. Um, so now we're going to move on to control of fluid balance. So you have something called ADH, is your antidiuretic hormone. So we know that diuretics are going to make you lose water. They're going to make you urinate. Um, antidiuretic hormone is something that's already present in your body, and this is... Um, I'm sorry, let me back up just a little bit. Okay, it is um, inhibited or stimulated from the pituitary gland. So the primary control of water in the body is through pressure sensors in the vascular system. Um, and these stimulate the ADH from the pituitary gland. And it's a, di a diuretic substance is what we say the, causes the kidneys to excrete more fluid. And ADH works in the opposite way. So ADH is going to keep your kidneys retaining fluid. It's going to keep the, it's an anti-diuretic, no diuretic. Um, if fluid pressures within the vascular system decrease, more ADH is released and water is retained. And if the fluid pressure increases, then less ADH is going to be released and the kidneys are going to eliminate more water. Um, so it's just really cool how our brain works. And it's a teeny tiny little piece of it that controls whether or not we're going to pee or not. So movement of fluids and electrolytes in the body. Fluid and electrolytes move in the body by active and passive transport systems. So active depends on the presence of adequate cellular adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, for energy, which we should know from high school. ATP is energy. The most common examples of active transport are sodium-potassium pumps. These pumps are located in cell membranes, and they cause sodium to move out of the cell and potassium to move into the cells when needed. So sodium-potassium pumps are kind of trading out. 
In passive transport, no energy is expended specifically to the, move these substances. General body movements aid passive transport. The three passive transport systems are diffusion, filtration, and osmosis. So we know ATP is for energy. You're going to have to have energy. Um, passive transport does not require energy. It does not require ATP. And you have three types, and that's diffusion, filtration, and osmosis. So diffusion is the movement of a substance from an area of higher concentration to an area of lower concentration. Um, it's talking about if you pour cream into a cup of coffee, the movement of molecules will eventually cause it to be dispersed without the whole entire throughout the entire beverage. Um, and if you stir it, it makes it go faster. So body movement assists passive transport, like stirring coffee. It causes diffusion to occur to occur at a faster rate. And the way that I think of diffusion, um, here it gives us a liquid example, but I literally think of diffusion as farting in a room full of people. It's going to start out in a really high concentration and it's going to probably smell. And then the longer that it's in the room, it's going to diffuse. It's going to kind of pass it away. Um, it's you're not going to be able to smell it anymore. So that's the way I think of it. You can think of the coffee cup scenario or you can think of a fart. And then we have filtration It's the movement of water and smaller molecules through a semi permeable membrane um, from a pressure from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. A semipermeable membrane works like a screen that keeps larger substances on one side and permits only smaller molecules to filter the other side. Um, and it's promoted by hydrostatic pressure differences in between areas. So when I think of filtration, I think of a colander or a stringer when you're making uh, macaroni and cheese and you need to separate the water from the noodles, um, you're going to have to uh, filtrate it. So and that is uh, promoted by hydrostatic pressure differences between areas. So you're going to have to have a heavier pressure on one side than the other. And then you have hydrostatic pressure. Um, sometimes called water pushing pressure is the force that water exerts and the body filtration is important for the movement of water nutrients and waste products in the capillaries. The capillaries serve as a semi-permeable membrane allowing water and smaller substances to move from the vascular system to the interstitial fluid and we know that interstitial fluid is what surrounds the body cells and includes lymph. Um, larger molecules and red blood cells remain inside the capillary wall so it's only getting rid of a few things it's not just completely washing everything out. Um, osmosis is the movement of water uh, from an area of lower substance concentration across the semipermeable membrane to an area of higher concentration. So let's back up for a second. We know diffusion is from higher to lower. We know that filtration has uh, to do with the semipermeable membrane, and it's going to also have to do with hydrostatic pressure gradient. Um, and then we have osmosis, and this is specifically dealing with water um, across the semipermeable membrane from an area of high. Uh, to an area of higher concentration. The water, uh, the power to pull water towards an area of higher concentration is referred to as osmotic pressure, so osmosis and osmotic pressure. This process continues until concentration is the same on both sides of the membrane. The term osmolarity refers to the concentration of the substances in body fluids. The so normal osmo osmolarity of blood is between 270 and 300 milliosmoles per liter. Okay, we're moving on. Another term for osmolarity is um, tonicity. Fluids or solutions can be classified as isotonic, hypotonic, or hypertonic. A fluid that's the same osmolarity in, as blood is called isotonic. So, for example, we have normal saline is isotonic to the blood. It's exactly the same. Um, and it's often used as a solution for IV therapy, which we know. A solution has a lower osmolarity than blood is called hypotonic. When a hypotonic solution is given to a patient, the water in the solution leaves the blood and other extracellular fluid areas and enters the cells. Hypertonic solutions exert greater osmotic pressure than the blood 
When a hypertonic solution is given to a patient, water leaves the cells and enters the bloodstream and other e, uh, ECF spaces. So fluid gains and fluid losses. Uh, here we're about to get into dehydration, which is um, the general before you jump into electrolyte imbalances, and that's where we get into the highs and lows. So um, water is very important to the body for cellular metabolism, uh, blood volume, blood or body temperature regulation, and solute transport, which ties into every other chapter that we've been in. If you don't have proper fluid in your body, things are going to start shutting down. Um, so although people can survive without food for several weeks, they can only survive a few days without water. Thirst is a major indicator in healthy adults that we need more water. Read that again. Thirst is the major indicator that a healthy adult needs more water. Um, so water is gained and lost from the body every day. In addition to liquid intake, some fluid is obtained from solid foods. When too much fluid is lost, the brain's thirst mechanism tells the individual to, that more fluid intake is needed. Older adults are more prone to fluid deficits because they have diminished thirst reflex and their kidneys do not function as effectively. So the older that we get, our body's not really telling us that we need to go drink some water like we would when we were younger, and their kidneys also don't function as effectively. So an adult loses as much as 2,500 milliliters of um, sensible and insensible fluid each day. So sensible is just meaning it makes sense that we're going to be getting rid of something this way. So sensible losses are those of which the person is aware, such as urination. So it makes sense that I know I have to urinate and I'm going to go to the bathroom and do that. Insensible losses may occur without a person recognizing them. So perspiration, which is sweating, and water loss through respiration, which is breathing, and elimination of feces are examples of insensible losses. So when I go to the bathroom, number two, I'm not thinking I'm getting rid of some water. It it's just contained in feces. Um, and then as we breathe in and out, there's um, water being expelled from our body, which is why we're wearing masks right now, um, because that is how, you know, coronavirus has been spread. And then perspiration is sweating. You know, we might not be soaking wet in our clothes, but we do sweat throughout the day um, in different ways. And that is also insensible loss of water. So now we're going to talk about fluid imbalances. Um, fluid imbalances are common in all clinical settings. Older people are the highest risk for life-threatening complications that can result from either a fluid deficit, more commonly called dehydration, or fluid excess. Infants are at risk for fluid deficit because they can take or they take in and excrete a larger proportion of their total body um, water each day. So we know now that fluid deficit is dehydration. Deficit meaning you're missing something. Um, and then you have a fluid excess. So dehydration, there are several types of dehydration, but the most common is discussed here. And dehydration occurs when there's not enough fluid in the body, especially in the blood or intravascular area. So I'm going to back up and we're going to look at intravascular. It says intravascular fluid or blood plasma is the fluid within arteries, veins, and capillaries. Fluids and electrolytes move between interstitial and intravascular. So if we are dehydrated, we don't have enough um, water in our body, things are going to start shutting down. And um, this is specifically in the intravascular area, which is the most uh, common. So um, our pathone etiology behind this is the most common form of dehydration results from loss of fluid from the body resulting in decreased blood volume. This decrease is referred to as hypovolemia. Hypovolemia occurs when a patient is hemorrhaging or when fluids from other parts of the body are lost, for example, severe vomiting and diarrhea, severely draining wounds, and profuse diaphoresis or sweating can cause dehydration. So when we think hypovolemia, I'm going to think vomiting. Hypovolemia, vomiting. Hypo means um, low, so we're going to have a decrease in something. 
Um, so a lot of the times when you get the flu or you've had a stomach bug or, you know, you ate something bad and you're going to go to the bathroom a lot, you're probably going to have diarrhea, you're going to be vomiting, you're going to be sweating because you get these chills and it just makes you feel gross. And what is the first thing that somebody's going to tell you to do when you talk to them? And you're like, oh my God, I've been sick. I've been throwing up. I can't keep anything down. It's coming out of both ends. They're going to tell you to go and get some Gatorade. Because this has electrolytes in it. Or they're going to tell you to drink a lot of water because you're getting out your fluids more than you can get them in quick enough. And this is where you get dehydrated. Dehydration um, can lead to a, a number of other issues. So if you can take care of the water part, you know, even if you're vomiting, even if you're if you have diarrhea, just keep replacing that fluid because your body will um, need that. So hypovolemia can occur. Um, also, when fluid from intravascular spaces move to the interstitial fluid space, um, this process is called third spacing. And examples of conditions in third spacing is common, including burns, liver cirrhosis, and extensive trauma. So when your body is burned or you have liver cirrhosis or you've had an extensive trauma, your body's going to start pulling um, water from other places. It's kind of like a defense mechanism. So um, as previously described, the body initially attempts to compensate for fluid loss by a number of mechanisms. If the fluid, the cause of fluid loss is not resolved or the patient's not able to replace the fluid, dehydration occurs. So, you know, when we say you've been in a house fire, you've been severely burned, your body's going to try and take care of itself before anybody else does. It's going to start pulling water from different spaces. And um, this can also cause you to become dehydrated. It's just um, sometimes one outweighs the other. So for prevention, um, you can help prevent dehydration by identifying patients who have the highest risk for developing this condition and intervening quickly to correct the cause. So high risk patients include, and I would suggest know this, older adults, infants, children, and any patient with one of the conditions in this box 6.1. So if you have diarrhea, a diuretic therapy, draining abscess or fistula, fever, gastrointestinal suction, hemorrhage, ileostomy, um, NPO for a long amount of time, Profuse diaphoresis, which is sweating, systemic infection, or vomiting. These are going to be your high-risk patients that you want to watch out for with dehydration. Because dehydration is, is it's such a simple thing, but very extensive at the same time. You literally can forget to drink water and mess your whole self up. So we want to make sure that we're keeping an eye on these patients. Um, older adults, because, you know, we don't function like we used to as we get older. And like they said, our thirst mechanism in our brain is not reminding us that we might be thirsty. We need to go get some, you know, we might not realize that we haven't drank something in hours. Um, infants, because they can't, you know, get up and go get themselves a bottle. Um, and they need more fluids than we do. Their percentage is a lot higher. Same for children. Um, everything is just balanced differently. And any patient with those conditions that are constantly putting off water, um, and need to have that replenished. So adequate hydration is another important intervention to help prevent dehydration. Encourage patients to drink adequate fluids. Adults need 30 milliliters per kilogram per day of fluids. If the patient is unable to take um, enough fluid by mouth, alternate routes may be necessary. So this is telling you not just to drink 30 milliliters of water per day, 30 milliliters per kilogram of fluid. So you should know how much your patient weighs and then you should be able to work that problem out to figure out how much water that person is supposed to be drinking a day. Um, because as I said, it has to do with not only your age, but your size. You have adults, infants, children, older adults. Um, 
And these people are going to, you know, I'm not going to need the same amount of intake that an infant would need. It's, it's completely different. So you need to know how to do that. Um, we're going to jump down to um, gerona, geronatological issues um, for dehydration. As a person ages, total body weight or total body water decreases from 60 to 50 percent of total body weight. This age related decrease in total body water is secondary to an increase in body fat and decrease in thirst sensation. So these factors increase the risk of developing dehydration. Manifestations of dehydration in an older adult are different from typical manifestations in a younger person. They may include an altered mental status, lightheadedness, and syncope, which is a loss of consciousness. These occur because a patient with hypovolemia, which as we said before, was um, a decrease in blood volume, um, has an inadequate circulatory volume and therefore inadequate oxygen supply to the brain. So the lesser um, blood volume that we have, and volume meaning filling something up. So when I think of volume, I'm thinking of I go to my refrigerator and I'm going to fill up a cup with ice and water. There's a lot of volume in there. It's a lot of space being filled. Um, so think of the inside of your arteries and your veins as the inside of a cup. Um, if you don't have enough pressure pushing on the outside of those, you're not getting enough blood flow quick enough to different parts of your body, specifically your brain when we think of this because we see loss of consciousness as a side effect or lightheadedness. If you're not getting enough fluid pushing these red blood cells and oxygen throughout your body, these are the side effects that you're going to see specifically um, more so in elderly because of their um, decrease in thirst sensation and decrease or increase in body fat. So um, signs and symptoms are, excuse me, um, thirst is the initial symptom experienced by otherwise healthy adults in response to hypovolemia. So lower blood volume in somebody, you're going to see that thirst is an initial symptom. You're going to tell that someone's mouth is super dry. Their mucous membranes might be um, a lighter color. They might ask you for something to drink. Like they might be asking for a lot of water. Some people don't. Sometimes you just got to look for the signs. So um, as a percentage of water in the blood goes down, the percentage of other substances goes up, resulting in a thirst response. As the blood volume decreases, so hypovolemia, the heart pumps the remaining blood faster, but not as powerfully. So our body is going to try and compensate and they're like, oh man, we better get this stuff moving. We're losing out on a lot of oxygen, but it, you're kind of running on fumes. So you can imagine being you're just a few minutes down the street from a gas station and you know how you're running on fumes. You're about to roll into that gas station. Well, you can hit that gas as hard as you want, but that doesn't mean that it's going to make it more powerful. So this result is a... Uh, this results in a rapid, weak pulse, rapid, shallow respirations, and a low blood pressure. So you are going to see a pulse, but it's going to be weak. It's going to be quick, but it's going to be weak. And then you're going to see rapid, shallow respiration. So you can be breathing. Your body's trying to compensate for it, but they're still going to be shallow. And a low blood pressure, as we said, because if you you know take somebody's blood pressure who's dehydrated, they have hypovolemia, there's not enough pressure pulsing through that um, your body to be able to pick it up. So the body pulls water into the vascular system um, from other areas. This results in a decreased tear formation, dry skin and dry mucous membrane. So um, increase or decreased tear formation. You know, what are you, where are you, where are you getting the water to, to send this out? Dry skin, um, especially in your elderly patients, you know, they don't have as much, you know, they don't have as much oil in their skin as they did before. So top that with dehydration and you've got some real flaking going on. Um, dry mucous membranes, as I said before, they're going to be kind of white. They should be pink and moist, but if you have dehydration, you're going to see the complete opposite in that. Um, a dehydrated person will have a poor skin turgor, and turgor is um, 
considered to be poor if the skin is pinched and a small tint or wrinkle remains called tinting. So the best place to test this out on a um, older patient is going to be over the forehead or sternum. Uh, any other place is not going to be a real good accurate indication. So a dehydrated person's temperature increases because the body is less able to cool itself through perspiration. Um, temperature may not appear um, elevated in an older person because an older adult's normal body temperature is often lower than a younger person. So we know that our body uses blood as a temperature, um, kind of like a temperature gauge. And if you don't have enough fluid or blood volume in your body, you don't have enough fluid volume, then your temperature is going to kind of be messed with. So um, urine output decreases because you don't have anything in there to be putting out. The urine becomes more concentrated. Uh, well, we know that if we drink a lot of water, our urine is going to be almost white, almost clear. Um, but if you don't drink a lot of water or if there's ever been a time that, you know, you've gone out on the weekend, you did some drinking and you're just pulling in a bunch of stuff that's not water and you come home and your urine is almost orange. And it's really thick is because you spent all that time drinking alcohol and you weren't getting water. Um, so same concept here. You're not getting water. Your urine's going to become more concentrated uh, because it's trying to conserve that water that you have left. Dehydration should be considered in any adult with a urine output of less than 30 milliliters per hour. And I have seen this in all of our F.A. Davis quizzes. I've seen this in our handouts. I've seen this everywhere. I know this is going to be on the test. Dehydration should be considered in any adult with a urine output of less than 30 milliliters per hour. Um, the urine may appear darker because it is less diluted. The patient becomes constipated as the intestines absorb more water from the feces. So a major method of evaluating dehydration is weight loss. So we also see that a pint of water weighs approximately one pound. And there's a learning tip on here that says, do you remember your grandmother saying a pint's a pound the world around? Um, it's a way to remember how much fluid loss is represented by each lost pound. Um, so the complications for dehydration, if not treated, um, is a lack of sufficient blood volume that can cause organ function to decrease and eventually fail. So the kidneys, the brain, the heart must be adequately perfused with blood to function properly. The body protects these organs by decreasing blood flow to other areas. When these organs no longer receive their minimum requirements, death results. So this is saying our big, big organs, the things that keep us living, brain, kidneys, heart, if they're not functioning properly um, due to inadequate blood supply, a lack of oxygen for a better word, um, then our body is going to start trying to protect these organs by decreasing blood flow to other areas. So, you know, our foot is not as important. Our hands aren't as important. Toes, that kind of stuff. Um, so, and like it says, when these organs no longer receive their minimum requirements, death results. So there's another learning tip. The magic fluid number is 30. Healthy adults should drink approximately 30 milliliters of fluid per kilogram of body weight per day. They should urinate at least 30 milliliters per hour. And this is just a basic rule of thumb and will vary uh, based on individual circumstances, such as elderly, um, younger people, and children. So our diagnostic tests um, that you're going to see when you're dealing with dehydration are going to be um, a bun level, which is blood, urea, nitrogen. Um, and elevated hematocrit. So both values are increased because there's less water in proportion to the solid substances being measured. The specific gravity of urine also increases as the kidneys attempt to conserve water, resulting in a more concentrated urine. Um, so bun and elevated hematocrit. So um, therapeutic measures would be um, the goal is to replace the fluids and resolve the cause of dehydration. In a patient with moderate to severe dehydration, IV therapy is used. 
Isotonic fluids that have the same osmolarity as blood, such as normal saline, are typically administered. So we learned that at the beginning of the chapter. Um, IV is just a quicker way to get um, fluids inside of your body uh, more at a time. And so you're going to use a isotonic fluid, which is the same osmolarity as blood, and that's normal saline. So um, nursing processes for patients experiencing dehydration. Um, it says nurses can play a role in identifying and caring for patients who are dehydrated. So you're going to start out with your data collection. Um, you're going to assess your patient for signs and symptoms of dehydration in the classic signs and symptoms may not be present. So when assessing an older patient um, for skin turgor or tinting, we're going to assess it over the forehead or the sternum, which we said before. The skin over these areas usually retains elasticity and is therefore a more reliable indicator of skin turgor. Um, also, check mucous membranes. Those should be moist. Um, weight is the most reliable indicator of fluid loss or gain. Um, a loss of one to two pounds or more per day suggests water loss rather than fat loss. And the patient in the hospital setting should be weighed every day. So the patient in the nursing home or home setting should be weighed at least three times a week if the patient is at risk for fluid imbalance. Um, weigh the patient before breakfast using the same scale each time. Intake and output are usually um, measured. So if you know that you're going to be weighing them at the same time, it just gives it more of a concrete standing when you're trying to um, figure out what's going on with someone. So there's also uh, cultural considerations in a blue box on page 55. It says Muslims who celebrate Ramadan traditionally fast for one month from sunup to sundown. Although the ill are not required to fast, adherents who are ill may still wish to do so. So fasting may include not taking fluids and medications during daylight hours. For a Muslim who is ill and is fasting, the nurse may need to alter times for medication administration, including intramuscular and medication um, special precautions may need to be taken to prevent dehydration. So then we're moving on to nursing diagnoses, planning, and implement implementation at the bottom of 55, and it starts out um, talking about the patient um, will be adequately hydrated as evidenced by stable weight, mucus, uh, our moist mucous membranes, and elastic skin turgor. This is our expected outcome. So when you're doing a nursing diagnosis, you always want to put what you're wishing for at the end, what your um, outcome or your goal is going to be. So First, we're going to monitor day, uh, daily weights, I's and O's, so the problems can be detected and corrected early because we know that the weight is a very good indicator. Uh, plan with the patient and other members of the healthcare team and type of uh, type and timing of fluid intake. So planning with the patient increases the likelihood that the plan will be followed. If your patient really doesn't know what the goal is, they don't know what they're working towards with you. Um, offer fluids with the confused patient because he or she may not drink independently. Like we said, it might be an older patient who might not remember. Um, also, infants can't really care for themselves. Um, correct underlying cause of the fluid deficit so it does not reoccur. So we want to make sure that if it's an older patient that, you know, can't remember, maybe we can leave some notes up around the house letting them know uh, what time that they need to start, you know, drinking something or give them a goal such as, you know, a water jug or something that they can fill up and drink throughout the day. Um, be careful not to overhydrate the patient so fluid excess does not occur. So we want to make sure that we are making um, our patient aware of how much water can be too much water. We want them to know, again, what the goal is. So um, let's see. It says CBOX 6.2 for best practices in maintaining oral hydration in older adults. Um, so for older adult, adults, a fluid intake sheet is the best method of monitoring daily fluid intake. So letting them Keep a record of what they're drinking throughout the day. Urine-specific gravity may be the simplest, most accurate method to determine patient hydration status. Evidence of dry, uh, furrowed tongue, mucous membranes, sunken eyes, confusion, upper body muscle weakness may indicate dehydration. Regular pre presentation of fluids to bedridden older people can maintain adequate hydration status. Owing the, to the observation that medication time can be an important 
um, source of fluid. Fluids should be encouraged at this time. So for patient education, um, teach the patient and family and significant others the importance of re uh, reporting early signs and symptoms of dehydration to the healthcare provider. At home or in the nursing home, infections can often um, can cause fever and sepsis. So sepsis is a serious condition in which the infection invades the bloodstream. The body attempts to decrease the temperature through perspiration, and the patient becomes dehydrated as a result and becomes uh, increasingly ill. So if you are taking care of a loved one, you need to be aware of these things. Um, whether you're a nurse, whether you are caring for someone in your family, um, know that sepsis is an infection that invades the bloodstream. And immediately your body's going to try and compensate for that by making you sweat. This can cause dehydration and you can become very ill. Usually sepsis um, is very, very high in uh, leading of the cause of death. So now we're going to bump down to um, fluid excess. So fluid excess is sometimes called overhydration. So we have dehydration. It's too little. This is too much. It's a condition in which a patient has too much fluid in the body. Most uh, problems related to fluid excess results from too much fluid in the bloodstream or from dilution of electrolytes in red blood cells. Um, the pathoetiology behind this is um, the most common result of fluid excess, and that's hypervolemia. So we know hypovolemia is too little. Hypervolemia is too much. Um, where there's excess fluid on the intravascular space, healthy adult kidneys can compensate for mild to moderate hypervolemia. The kidneys increase urinary output to rid the body of the extra fluid, and sometimes the kidneys cannot keep up with the excess fluid. Conditions that cause excessive fluid intake are poorly controlled IV therapy or excessive ingestion of water. So if we're not watching how much is going to someone in an IV, this can be dangerous. And if we are not making sure that our patient is um, aware of how much they should be drinking and they're drinking too much, this can cause a fluid excess. Uh, it can also occur secondary to excessive sodium intake. So we know that water follows salt, um, adrenal gland dysfunction, or use of corticosteroid drugs. Conditions that can result in inadequate excretion of fluid include kidney failure, heart failure, and syndrome of appropriate ADH. Um, these conditions are discussed later. So um, now we're going to talk about the prevention of fluid excess. One of the best ways to prevent fluid excess is to avoid excessive fluid intake. Monitor the patient receiving IV therapy for signs and symptoms. Um, At-risk patients and electronic controllers should be used to control the rate of infusion. So we're not going to trust the patient to do that by themselves. Another, um, also monitor the fluid for irrigation. So for example, when a patient's stomach is being irrigated, gastric lavage, be sure an excessive amount of fluid is not absorbed. So we're going to be looking for what we're pulling out. Um, signs and symptoms. The vital sign changes seen in a patient with fluid excess are found opposite of those who have dehydration. So blood pressure is going to be higher, pulse is going to be bounding, respirations are going to be increased and labored, and neck veins may become distended. So pitting uh, dependent edema, excess water and tissues, and the feet and legs may be present. The skin um, is pale and cool, and you're going to have an increase of urine output. Your urine output is going to be diluted almost like water. Um, you're going to have rapid weight gain, and the patient develops moist crackles in the lungs, dyspnea, and ascites, which is excess peritoneal fluid. So there was a lot of this in ATI practice and medcoms showing uh, it's the opposite of the signs that you're going to see in dehydration. Um, so the complications of this would typically result in congestive heart failure, meaning that there's too much fluid on the heart, um, and it's not going to function adequately if there's too little or if there's too much. So as the fluid builds up on the heart, the heart's not able to pump, uh, to properly function as a pump. The fluid then backs up into the lungs, causing a condition known as pulmonary edema, which is swelling um, in the lungs. 
would have to do would be pulmonary. Other major organs of the body cannot receive adequate oxygen. Organ failure can lead to death. So your diagnostic text, uh, tests, if the patient is experiencing fluid excess, your bone and hematocrit levels tend to decrease because the extra fluid dilutes the blood. So what this is saying is when you take a blood sample and you put it in the centrifuge and you're testing it for different things, your bone and your hematocrit levels are going to um, decrease because they're kind of going to be not lost in the fluid, but there's just going to be so much fluid it's going to be harder to see this stuff, so there's going to be a decrease in it. Um, the plasma content of the blood is uh, proportionately increased compared with the solid substances. The specific gravity of the urine also diminishes as the urinary output increases. So next we're going to go to um, therapeutic measures. Once a patient's breathing has been supported, the goal of the treatment is to rid the body of excess fluids and resolve the underlying cause of the ex excess. So for positioning, um, for easy breathing, you're going to put the head of the bed in a semi-fowler or high-fowler position. So you want them to be sitting up so that fluid's not pressing down. Um, they allow greater lung expansion and a respiratory effect. Once the patient has been properly positioned, um, oxygen therapy may be necessary. So oxygen therapy is used um, to ensure adequate perfusion of major organs and minimize dyspnea. Um, monitor your, the pulse ox and respiratory rate carefully. And then we have drug therapy. Therapy. So diuretics are commonly administered to um, rapidly rid the body of excess water. A diuretic is a chemical that increases elimination of fluid by the kidneys. The drug of choice for fluid excess when a patient has adequately functioning kidneys is usually a loop diuretic, such as furosemide, Lasix. Um, loop diuretics cause the kidney to excrete sodium and water. Um, sodium and water tend to move together in the body. Potassium is another electrolyte that is also lost. This can lead to a potassium deficit, um, and we talk about that later. So, furosemide might be given by oral, intramuscular, or IV route. The oral route is most commonly used for mild fluid excess, and IV furosemide is um, administered for severe fluid excess. So, the patient should begin diuresis within 30 minutes after receiving the IV furosemide. So, strict INO should be monitored for these patients as well as a daily weight when a patient is receiving IV furosemide. So a recap, um, furosemide is usually common for somebody that has well-functioning kidneys, and this is gonna um, get rid of that fluid. It's going to get rid of sodium and water. But with that being said, sometimes it also carries out potassium, which can be um, dangerous because it's going to give you a potassium deficit. So we need to be um, strictly monitoring their I's and O's. For a diet therapy, mild to moderate fluid restriction may be necessary, as well as a sodium-restricted diet. Why? Because water follows salt. Um, in collaboration with the dietitian, the healthcare provider provide, uh, prescribes the specific restriction necessary. This is usually a 1 to 2 gram sodium restriction for severe excess. Um, different diuretics resulting from different electrolyte elimination. Specific diet therapy depends on the medications and the patient is receiving and the patient's underlying medical problems, um, so such as if they already have, you know, kidney issues or what have you. So nursing process for the patient experiencing fluid excess, we're going to observe the patient who is at high risk for fluid excess, monitor their I's and O's. If the patient is drinking adequate amounts of fluid, which is 100 or 1,500 milliliters per day or more, but is voiding in small amounts, the fluid's being retained by the body. So if you're putting in, putting in, putting in, and you're not getting anything out, um, it's being held somewhere. So you're going to assess for edema, which is swelling. If it's pitting, um, means that you have to press your finger down it um, and it leaves a temporary indention, this is pitting. So a finger pressed against the skin over a bony area, such as the tibia, leaves a temporary indention. For patients in bed, you check their sacrum for edema. 
Um, for patients in the sitting position, check their feet and legs. It usually tends to go to the lower extremities. Um, also assess the lung sounds. Um, excess fluid accumulation in the lung sounds, uh, lungs can cause crackles. So uh, weight is the most reliable indicator of fluid. Again, weight at risk patients daily. A gain of one to two pounds or more per day indicates a fluid retention, even though other signs and symptoms might not be present. So nursing diagnoses, um, planning and implementation for these patients. The patient will return to a normal hydration status as evidenced by return to weight. That is normal for the patient, absence of edema and clear lung sound. So this should be your expected outcome as a nurse going into this. Um, you're gonna report increase in weight to the healthcare provider. Increased weight indicates fluid retention. You are going to implement fluid restriction as ordered to reduce excess intake. Work with the patient and the registered nurse to determine how much should be implemented. For example, if the patient is on a 1,000 milliliter per day fluid restriction, you might plan for 150 milliliters of each meal. Um, 450 milliliters might be given to a patient to use as he or she likes during the day, and 100 milliliters might be used during night. Um, be sure to include the patient in your planning. Remember to reserve enough fluid for swallowing medications. Uh, post a sign on the patient's room so the other caregivers know how much fluid the patient can have because they will try and tell you that they can have whatever and that is not the case and you could really hurt somebody. So you're gonna administer diuretics as ordered, monitor the patient's response, make sure or be sure to monitor potassium in patients receiving potassium wasting loop or thiazide diuretics. Diuretics promote diuresis. Um, Report urinary output below 30 milliliters per hour in the healthcare provider or, or to the healthcare provider or RN because this may signify increasing renal complications. So your evaluation, um, if interventions have been effective, the patient will return to his or her normal weight with clear lung sound and no edema. Many patients must remain on drug and diet therapy after hospital discharge to prevent the problem um, from reoccurring. So if you see that sodium has been giving you an issue and they put you on a sodium restriction while you're in the hospital, chances are you're probably going to stay on that regimen when you go home so that you don't end up right back where you were. So for your patient education, um, in collaboration with the dietitian, instruct your patient and family and other caregivers about any fluid or sodium restrictions to prevent further problems. You're going to want to let them know um, so that they can also work with the patient and they're not giving them things that they shouldn't have. Um, Common foods that have high sodium are listed in Table 6-1. If a potassium wasting diuretic is prescribed, teach the patient to eat high or eat foods that are in high potassium. And these are also on Table 6.2. The first thing that you come to usually when you think of potassium is going to be a banana. Um, so the patient's serum potassium level must be periodically monitored by the healthcare provider or home health nurse. And if it becomes too slow or oral potassium supplement is needed. Um, Teach the patient or caregiver common signs and symptoms of fluid excess that should be reported to the healthcare provider. Of special importance is weight gain. So a patient at high risk for fluid excess should be weighed at least three times a week in the home or nursing home at the same time each day on the same scale. Weight gain should be reported. Um, so it says over here in our nutrition notes on page 58 in the red box. I'm not going to read through that, but that is pretty much telling you um, what an adequate intake of sodium is. So 1.5 grams daily for adults through the age of 50, 1.3 grams daily for those from 51 to 70, and 1.2 grams daily for those 71 and older. Um, and then also the table 6-1 and 6-2, these blue boxes on page 59, is telling you um, how much sodium is going to be in a cheeseburger, pork, um, turkey breast, lunch meat, canned pasta with meat sauce, chicken noodle soup, chicken strips, uh, pizza slice, 
at a restaurant, frozen pizza, corn dog, chicken nuggets, American cheese, boneless chicken breast, slice of white bread, potato chips. Um, but then it also shows you the good sources of potassium in food, and that's uh, baked potato, the flesh and the skin, uh, canned white beans, sweet potato baked in skin, salmon, Atlantic, wild-cooked, plain yogurt, that's low-fat, tomato juice that's canned, orange juice that's fresh, and medium banana. So these are all um, good sources of potassium, which is likely will be a question on the test because we like to know what we should be avoiding in foods or uh, promoting in foods with our patients. So now we're going to go to electrolyte balance. Um, this is a very short little paragraph. So natural minerals in food become electrolytes or ions in the body through digestion and metabolism. Electrolytes are usually measured in milliequivalents per liter, so the MEQ slash L, or in milligrams per deciliter, so you see uh, MG slash DL. Electrolytes are one of two types, cations and ions. So cations carry a positive electrical charge and anions carry a negative electrical charge. Although there are many electrolytes in the body, this chapter discusses the more important ones. So that will be sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. These electrolytes are maintained in different concentrations inside the cell and outside the cell because of pumps in the cell wall. So now that we know what normally should be there, now we can move on to the electrolyte imbalances so that we know what we're looking for. So at times the patient may experience a problem because of too much or too little of an electrolyte. In general, if the patient experiences a deficit of an electrolyte, the electrolyte is replaced either orally or intravenously. So if the patient experiences an excess of an electrolyte, treatment focuses on getting rid of that excess via the kidneys. Underlying cause of the imbalance uh, must also be treated. So the most important aspects of nursing care are preventing and assessing electrolyte imbalances. You must be vigilant and watching for signs of imbalance at high-risk patients. Serum electrolytes are measured on a regular basis. As a general rule, patients should be checked for electrolyte imbalance when there's a change in their mental status, either increased irritability or decreased responsiveness when or when muscle function changes. Um, patient education is another important nursing rule. So we're going to talk about sodium imbalances. Um, which we've kind of talked a little bit on in the past um, few paragraphs, but this is going to get more de in depth with your normal levels and um, what your signs and symptoms are going to be. So a normal level of serum sodium is 135 to 145 milliequivalents per liter. So because sodium is the major cation in the blood, it helps maintain serum osmolarity. Therefore, sodium imbalances are often associated with fluid imbalances because water follows salt. Um, so described earlier in this chapter, sodium is also important for cell function, especially in the nervous system. Two sodium imbalances are hyponatremia and hypernatremia. So hypo, think low. Hypo is low, sodium deficit. Hyper is going to be an excess. So when you think of hypo, hypo is low. Hyper is just a bunch of it bouncing around in there. It's really hyper. So it's an excess. So let's start with hyponatremia. Hyponatremia occurs when the serum sodium level is less than 135 milliequivalents per liter. And the pathology behind this is many conditions can lead to either an actual or a relative decrease in sodium. So an actual decrease, the patient has an inadequate intake of sodium or excessive sodium loss from the body. As the percentage of sodium in the extracellular fluid decreases, water is pulled by osmotic pressure into the cells. 
Um, its relative decrease, the sodium is not lost from the body. Instead, it may leave the intravascular space and move to the interstitial um, tissues, third spacing, where it becomes trapped and looseless. So this is just saying that the sodium might not actually be leaving your body, but it's just being pulled into a different area, and that's called third spacing, and it can't be used where it's pulled to. So another cause of relative decrease um, occurs when the plasma volume increases, so fluid excess, um, causing a dil dilutional effect, um, meaning it's just really diluted and you can't really, it's, um, I kind of think of when you get orange juice and orange juice is like really thick or you're giving orange juice to a kid and you don't want like all the sugar in it so you feel better if you add water to it and you dilute it. Uh, or you do that with any kind of juice. That's what I think of when it's talking about this. So the percentage of sodium compared with the fluid is diminished. So if you go to look at their sodium, it's going to show that there's less because there's also um, other fluid in with this. So the prevention um, would be an additional sodium is commonly administered to patients at high risk for hyponatremia. Um, and usually it's given IV route. So I um, kind of want to back up for a second. The hyponatremia, we know hypo is low, but some of these words tend to run together and you're going to see what I mean when we go a little bit further. But when I see um, hyponatremia, natremia, the NA in the middle, NA is um, the, the symbol for sodium. So that's how I remember hyper and hyponatremia um, go with salt. So hyponatremia is especially dangerous for an older patient. Um, Let's see. Individuals who have high fevers or who engage in strenuous exercise or physical labor, especially in heat, need to replace both sodium and water. So have you ever, um, you know, been around somebody that as I'm assuming that, you know, here in the South where we are, you've seen someone growing up that has always been working outside, maybe farming, maybe gardening, um, maybe somebody just cutting the grass. And it's usually a man that you'll see having a hat on. And right at the brim of the hat, you're going to see like this white um, kind of a stain on their hat. And that is actually salt. Like it is sodium that has been leaving the body. And there's a salt that just kind of like hardens onto the hat. And I always thought that was crazy because um, when my grandmother used to cut the grass, she'd come in and she'd be like, I'm so salty. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And it was the salt that she sweat out while she was cutting grass. So um, you will see this in people that do a lot of physical labor or um, have high fevers or in strenuous exercise, maybe people that run marathons or something. So they are going to have hyponatremia most likely. Um, for the signs and symptoms, unfortunately, um, they're kind of vague and depend on whether a fluid imbalance accompanies the hyponatremia. So, you know, you may see um, a, a change in their appearance. And you may not, but that's going to depend on whether or not you see this hyponatremia. A uh, patient with sodium and fluid deficits have signs and symptoms of dehydration. So a patient with a sodium deficit, meaning less, um, and relative fluid excess has signs and symptoms associated with fluid excess. So if there's too much fluid on the body, we're going to see this sodium deficit. Um, with the more severe sodium deficit, the patient experiences mental status changes. Because uh, remember, if you sentences ago, we said that it, this has a lot to do with your central nervous system. Um, so that would include disorientation, confusion, personality changes, and this is occurs because the low sodium and decrease in osmolarity cause more water pushing pressure. Um, this causes water to collect in and around the brain or cerebral edema and increases intracranial pressure. Um, weakness, elevated body temperature, tachycardia, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea may also occur, um, which means you're going to become you know, dehydrated because you're losing a lot of stuff. So the complications in this, um, in severe hyponatremia, respiratory arrest or coma can lead to death. The patient who also has fluid excess can develop 
pulmonary edema, which is another life-threatening uh, complication. Um, for the diagnostic test, the primary diagnostic test is a serum sodium level um, in which hyponatremia registers below 135 milliequivalents per liter. The serum osmolarity, which um, also decreases in patients with hyponatremia. Another laboratory result that may be affected if the patient um, experiences an accompanying in fluid balance, serum chloride and anion is often depleted when sodium decreases because these two electrolytes commonly combine as um, NaCl, sodium chloride, um, serum chloride, uh, saltiness solution, or saline. So um, these are just some ways that you can tell if you don't see the signs and symptoms outside um, if your patient has hyponatremia. So therapeutic measures, how are we going to fix this? Um, they focus on resolving the underlying cause of hyponatremia and replacing the lost sodium. So the healthcare provider may order IV saline for patients who have hyponatremia without fluid excess, because if they have fluid excess, you don't want to start an IV and keep giving it to them. So for patients who have a fluid excess, a fluid restriction is often ordered. Diuretics that rid the body of fluid but do not cause sodium loss may also be used. For patients with cerebral edema, steroids may be prescribed to reduce intracranial swelling. Um, and we also learned that there, uh, this was in a past couple of texts that we had, that there is another type of diuretic that we can use when there is an intracranial swelling or intracranial pressure, and that would be an osmotic um, diuretic. So INOs are strictly monitored. The patient is weighed daily, and you implement interventions to keep the patient safe um, if their mental status is affected. So if they kind of feel like they're losing it, you um, are going to keep them safe um, and make sure that they don't hurt themselves or anyone else. So I'm going to back up just a little bit to um, high-risk conditions for hyponatremia. So the patients that would be at high risk would be patients that have NPO, nothing by mouth, excess diaphoresis or sweating, diuretics, GI suction, syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone, um, excessive ingestion of hypotonic fluids, fresh water near drowning, um, decreased aldosterone. So these are the patients you would really want to watch for to have this um, sodium deficit. Ooh, I think I Okay, so um, gerontological issues uh, would be confusion. Often older patients who experience a change in their electrolyte levels will be present with sudden, unexplained confusion. So immediate identification and treatment may quickly resolve the confused state. The older patient's cardiovascular system is very sensitive to quick fluid shifts. It's important to remember intravenous infusions should only be provided at the rate prescribed by the healthcare provider. So we are not going to go in there and tinker with stuff. Um, we're going to leave it the way they had it. So... Next, we're going to go into hypernatremia. Mm -hmm.